Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today's Monday, August 24th. The Dow is up, Zoom was down, at least for a little while, and we're focused on President Trump's second-term agenda. The Republican National Convention kicks off this evening, and like the Democrats last week, it'll be done virtually. Other than that, expect lots of differences in terms of both spectacle and substance. Specifically, Trump land spent much of last week criticizing the DNC for being very light on policy, and then this morning released a 49-point plan for President Trump's second term. Now, a lot of this is a wish list and reminiscent of what Trump ran on in 2016, particularly prerogatives like cutting taxes and regulation, although it obviously also includes pandemic-specific items, including an eyebrow raiser about developing a vaccine by year-end. The big question now isn't so much what the president wants to sell, so much as can he sell it? particularly in areas like economic growth and jobs. A lot of what Trump promised there in 2016 simply did not come to pass. For example, Trump regularly said that the country would achieve at least 4% annual growth, and maybe even higher, and that that growth would more than pay for the 2017 tax cuts. But in the end, the economy only averaged 2.5% growth during his first three years, and now, because of COVID, we're in a recession. So in 15 seconds, we'll dig in to where Trump has helped bring the U.S. economy and where he wants to help lead it next with campaign senior advisor Jason Miller. But first, this. We're joined now by Jason Miller, a senior advisor to the Trump campaign. Jason, there's this old James Carville line from 1992. It's the economy stupid. In this election in 2020, is that still the North Star? Yeah, no. And I think you hit the, uh, the nail on the head. This is actually something I brought up with uh, George Stephanopoulos when I was uh, on his show this past week. And I took back to the 92 campaign and said that was one of the Hall of Fame campaign quotes of all time. So this is why we feel so good about where this race is trending ever since we've started really drawing the contrast about where President Trump wants to take the economy, more tax cuts, more deregulation, continuing to grow it as we've seen in the last three months recovering from COVID and contrast that against Joe Biden, who has already said that he will raise taxes by $4 trillion on his first day or as soon as they can go and get that approved. That plus the potential now for a national shutdown under Biden. And you really have a key differential in this race. Do you want to see economic greatness or do you want to see economic decline? So we feel good about the way this is stacking up, but it's ultimately it's, it's going to come down to the economy and what the real world, real wallet impact is for voters all across the country. On the Biden tax cut thing last night in the ABC interview, he talked about how he would want taxes raised for individuals making over $400,000 a year. And then on the corporate side for large businesses, not for small businesses. Are those two policies President Trump would oppose? First of all, I mean, I'm not sure Joe Biden even realizes which tax plan he's talking about. He said that he would repeal all of the President Trump's tax cuts. And so if he's changing that now, then and I think he needs to clear that up. But obviously that greatly benefited middle class Americans and also on the raising taxes on businesses that would have a massive impact. But also we got to look at his own version of a new green deal, which just on its own would be about two trillion in additional taxes, plus upwards of nine million direct energy and energy support jobs all around the entire country. And let's not forget what Kamala Harris said when asked about the AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
which she thought about AOC's 70 to 80% top tax rate. And Kamala Harris said that was fantastic. So I think the Democratic ticket might need to get their stories a little bit straight. But here's the reality, Dan, is they're going to raise taxes. That's where they're going. And if you think that it's only going to be on super rich people in this country, I got some uh, extra ballots in the Carolyn Maloney primary uh, to sell you. The Trump campaign came out with a second term agenda today, around 50 items or so. But the first one when it came to jobs was create 10 million new jobs in 10 months. Now, if achieved, that would still bring us a little bit below where we were pre-pandemic. But what's the main driver there? Is it simply pure reopening or is there some policy driver that would help create 10 million jobs in 10 months? Yeah, excellent question. So what we're going to do, and last night, President Trump released the second term agenda, and then he's going to be talking about it quite a bit more this week. He'll talk about it in a little bit more detail in his speech on Thursday, and then he's going to spend about the next probably three to four weeks with a number of policy speeches. We're probably going to see one or two policy speeches a week where he's going to go through. And so particularly in that push there for the 10 million jobs in 10 months, uh, which obviously want to keep the V-shaped recovery going, then there'll be a number of tax cuts and different incentives, different things we can do to get the economy going. Can I ask about that, though? Are tax cuts and other incentives enough? I mean, aren't we ultimately, and this is probably true for the Biden campaign too, but aren't all these economic prescriptions really ultimately based on whether or not we have a vaccine and when? Because so much of this, whether individuals can go to work, whether their kids can go to school so they can go to work, is relying on something that has nothing to do with taxes. Well, uh, no, hold on. It all goes together. So you have to look at COVID recovery and what we're doing in the key differential. And I don't want to, I want to put a pin in this, Dan, and I want to come back to it because Joe Biden wants to do is manage COVID where Donald Trump wants to eradicate COVID. And there's, I'll come back to that in just a moment here. It has to do with eradicating COVID. I do think we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year. I do think we'll be able to return to normal in 2021. That is a part of it. But also, as we saw, we took the tough steps early on to go and flatten the curve, shut down the economy. And we saw what that impact was. And we know that we cannot go and shut down the country again. We have to look for ways to continue to safely reopen we can't afford to go and shut the economy down again. What if safely reopen, depending on the circumstances, you know, a place outbreak, et cetera, isn't a viable option? Or if the trade-off for that is a lot of death? Well, you look at, we've had an 18% reduction in new cases over the past couple of weeks, and we're now at the lowest point in new cases per day that we've been at for the last, the trend line here for the last month and a half. So we're on the backside of this curve here. And so we're following the gating procedures the protocols that the administration laid out early. Different states are going on different schedules, but it's starting to clear up a number of these southern states that had the bigger issue during the summer. Things are getting a lot better in Florida and a number of these other states that were that were particularly hard hit. And so there have been very specific protocols that have been laid out and each governor is doing it slightly differently. So we are running the corner. We do see, a, uh, to use my cliches here, a light at the end of the tunnel for where we can go. But we have to use the Operation Warp Speed to get the vaccine done, to get it distributed to people. And we're going to have this vaccine done in in record time in a way the country's never seen before. We'll say for another time that we don't really know yet when the vaccine is going to be done, because that'll depend on the trials. But can I ask on the economy and when it comes to taxes, when it comes to jobs, I wrote a piece this morning kind of looking back at some of the things that the president had said during the 2016 campaign. And a lot of them, while indeed pre-pandemic, the economy was growing on a regular basis, jobs were being added, we weren't getting close to the promises he had made, particularly, say, on GDP, where he talked about we would be at 4% annually, we never crack 3%. Why was he wrong in 2016, given that he did get his tax cuts through and and had a GOP Congress for two years? Keep in mind, we're also running into the headwinds of a global recession. But that's now. I'm talking about 2017, 2018, 2019. 
where we are, I mean, this is something that's been trending globally, but the fact that the U.S. has remained as strong as we have and up until COVID been trending in the right direction as well as we have, I think shows that this is still the best place in the world to put your money. You're not going to go and take your money now and, and go and put it into China. You're not going to take your money now and go and put it into Spain, for example. I mean, the U.S. is the best place to put your money. We have the rule of law. We have a stable economy. We have a highly educated workforce. We have a very productive workforce. You're talking about the second term agenda in addition to the jobs and eradicating COVID. You'll notice, Dan, the third thing that we talk about is ending our reliance on China. And this is a much more aggressive positioning, I think, particularly stacks up well with a contrast with Joe Biden, who's someone who all these bad trade deals have happened under his watch. We've seen millions of jobs leave the U.S. and go to China. Probably not a good idea in retrospect on the WTO entry or the MFN status. So we like this contrast talking about China. The president's going to remain pretty tough. On that issue of the U.S. being the best place to invest, that said, people outside the U.S. don't seem to necessarily agree, correct? Because if you look at the first three years of the Trump administration, FDI or foreign direct investments, i.e. people outside the U.S. investing here, it's been lower in each of those three years than it was in 2015 or 2016. Still have a lot of money in the uh, bond markets. Still have a lot that's invested here. We're seeing a lot of plants still that are coming here and that are developing a lot of the, the auto folks, other big things. So this is still the place. Um, I mean, we've seen a global trend of a lot of folks during this global recession where people are holding on to their money a little bit tighter. They're not necessarily investing it in um, putting in FDI and other places. But we think that as we start to round the corner out of COVID, people realize the U.S. is the best place, really the only place in the world where you know that your money is going to be safe. And this is a place where you can go and make more of it. Jason Miller, senior advisor to the Trump campaign. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, good luck this week. Hey, thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Welcome back. What we're watching today is TikTok, which sued the White House over an executive order from two weeks ago, which would require TikTok to have a sale agreement by September 15th. The complaint, filed in California, argues that TikTok does not present the national security threat Trump claims it does, and that it was deprived of due process. Two things to know. First, this lawsuit does not seem to impact the sales talks, since TikTok is not suing over a so-called CFIUS ruling which also requires divestiture, albeit over a longer and more specific timeline. As one source explained to me, these are parallel processes. Two, the White House, it hasn't responded. Today, we're also watching gasoline as a pair of tropical storms called Laura and Marco are threatening to hit the Gulf Coast. Normally, this is the sort of thing that would cause pump prices to rise, and pretty dramatically, due to expected refining disruptions. But today, so far, it's only having a nominal impact. The basic reason is that COVID-19 has caused a sharp demand drop for fuel, which came at the same time as record oil production. Or to put more simply, supply and demand in 2020 isn't the same as supply and demand in years past. And finally, we're watching Zoom. Literally, we use Zoom now to produce the show, but earlier today, it experienced a widespread outage that caused major issues for companies and colleges and everyone else living remote lives. All seems better now, and the company says it figured out the problem, but it is a good reminder of how huge parts of our society are just an app glitch away from massive inconvenience. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, as Naomi is out enjoying vacation. Have a great National Waffle Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.